John, if you read through the book of John, John really highlights like just the last week of Jesus' life primarily. And so uh, leading up to his death, uh, we see, we read through, through most of the Gospels that, there, that Jesus gathered his closest friends and he had supper and had communion, washed their feet, again, told them of what's getting ready to happen and they didn't believe him. Like we don't believe Jesus a lot of times. Jesus tells us things and we're like, oh, I feel so, so, you know, convinced right now. And then as soon as the feeling fades, we're like, yeah, yeah, maybe. But I love this part because Jesus, get, Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read this in John 18. This is not going to be on your screen. I just want to insert this. Stepping, towards, uh, stepping forward to meet him, he asked, whom are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas was standing there with them when Jesus identified himself. And as he said, I am he, they all fell backward to the ground. This is something else that really happened. Like Jesus is in his most tense week of his life. He had such authority, such power just in the words that he was speaking. And over here, he's basically saying, I am he, I am Jesus. I am the one that you're looking for. And that is a a brilliant message to us. He is the one that you are looking for. These Roman soldiers were looking to arrest him, looking to incarcerate him, looking towards handling Jesus. And at the end, Jesus ends up handling them. But what they're searching for, we are searching for, and we may have different reasons like they did. But once more, he asked them after they probably got back up from the ground, or maybe they were just laying there like, what in the world? What what in the world happened? And once more, he asked them, whom are you searching for? And again, they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, he said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. So we have this leading up where Jesus gets arrested. After he gets arrested, he gets tried. He gets beaten up. He gets disfigured. He suffers brutally. And then he's crucified. We celebrate Good Friday, the day that changed everything when God allowed mankind to kill God. Jesus said, I can send legions of angels to wipe this planet completely clean. Such great mercy that he did not wipe us clean whenever we laid a finger on God. He was buried. He died. Some people think that he didn't die, but he definitely died. And this is all historical. All the things I'm telling you, it's all historical. It's not just in the Bible and that's, that just Christians believe because this is something that we need to have happened. But this is provable. There's evidence for what I'm saying. He was crucified. He did die and he was buried. All these things have happened. And then I love it because we read John chapter 20. And I don't even know if we, this is going to be on the screen either. I, I've added this scripture for us today. But I love John chapter 20. Verse 1 through 8, on the the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and and we don't know where they've put him. At At that, Peter and the other disciples went out heading for the tomb, and two of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Verse 5 says, stooping down, he saw the linen cloth 
lying there where he did not go in, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the, the linen cloths lying there. And wrapping, the wrapping that had been on his head was not lined with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed and saw and believed. This is what triggered the church to be born. It was not just theory. It was not just a good feeling. It was not just, you know, a bunch of people who loved Jesus a lot wanted his legacy to live on in some sort of format. So they came together and just made up a story and tried to make this Jesus live as a legend. But Jesus did not come so he can live as a legend. Jesus came as a savior so he can be king of all. And so he does not need the title of legend. And so the disciples did not, and the people did not just try to elevate him. They really thought he was dead. And why did they think he was dead? They thought he was dead because most other people who claimed to be messiahs came and went. And Rome killed them as well. And all the followers and everything, they kind of just, the whole thing got dismantled. And so they basically were just waiting for the worst. They were dismantling. Later on, we read that they went fishing, back to what they used to do, but they were scared, they were hiding, because they knew what would happen to them. You know, they killed the leader, and then they would go after all the followers and, and kill them as well. So, so this was in a moment of intense fear that all of a sudden, on the third day, they cannot even properly finish burying Jesus. I think that is so, so profound. And then we have this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read this because a lot of times... Easter seems to be a moment where not even everyone believes that Jesus resurrected. They, they, they even say that it's all right, I still believe that Jesus is God, but just the fact that he resurrected is like, I don't really know about this. And the thing is that that thinking is not new to our 21st century minds. They were thinking the same thing in the, the, the Bible time as well. And I want to read uh, a letter that Paul wrote to the church and the people in Corinth. In, in Corinth. And the, the, these are letters in Scripture. And so the, he's addressing some of, the, uh, some of the same questions. Because after a while, when something happens that's profound, it impacts you. But as life has it, 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 life pounds us and pounds us. And then we become stale to certain truths that are vitally important. And so I just want to remind us of these truths. And so if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And it's going to be up on the screen, but it says this, now I want to make clear for you. Meaning that there are certain things that may have been just unclear. You may have had it clear at one point, but now maybe you're questioning some things. Maybe, maybe you're not too sure, so I'm just writing this. I'm writing this and to tell you, to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you when you heard it from the beginning, which you received on which you have taken your stand. I love this. These are all action words. It's not just a head knowledge. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. And I think there's a lot of people who believe in vain. And so he's cautioning them. Let me clarify for you so that you are affirmed and can be confident that what I pass down to you, I don't believe in vain, and you shouldn't either. For I passed on to you as most important 
most important, that which I also received, that Christ, he died. He just did not become weak and almost died. He actually died, died. And not just died so that he can die, but there's purpose behind it behind Christ's death, and that is that he died for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, according to Scripture. So this, does, this did not just come out of the blue, like random. No, we have evidences from the Old Testament leading up all the way to Jesus' birth, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. The people were anticipating and waiting for this Messiah to come. And so that's why Rome was very tense because as soon as there's a word that Messiah is here, things got really ugly. And so Rome had to try to keep the peace. And especially when all these people come for Passover, it's just a lot of people. You have a city that may have like 30,000, 40,000 people. But on Passover, you can get a couple hundred thousand people. You know, it would be like the Christian version of the thing that used to happen here in Nashville called Belshare. <laughs> All right, we're here. Verse 4, that he was buried. So he didn't just die. And we don't know what happened. We just kind of lost sight. No, we know that he died. We know that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day, not just out of the blue, but according to the scriptures. And he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures that, has been, that have been written hundreds of years prior to all of this. And that he appeared, so I love this because this goes into just something that has happened in regards to the death and resurrection. But this gets personal. He says, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' half-brother. Because you guys know, too, that James did not believe that his brother was the Messiah. Like, that's a hard pill to swallow if your sibling is God. Like, he, he always has the upper hand. Like, you cannot outsmart and outwit God. Like, like, you're done for. That's it. Like, you know, it's always my fault, Mom. You can never blame, blame Jesus. Yeah, you, he says, then he appeared to James too. Why? Just to confirm, not just that he claimed it, and not just that the scriptures were written, but also he, he showed up after he died, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to the one born in the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Do you see how personal this is? This is completely opposite of religion. And unfortunately, in our American culture, Easter is a big religious holiday. And a, lot, and a lot of people who come to church on Easter are those who only come once a year or twice a year. And they don't really, they, they, don't, they have not stepped into, and maybe this is you, you have not fully stepped into the fact that Jesus should and could appear to you. Because religion says, oh, you do your thing, I do my thing. But Jesus is trying to say is, I want to become real to you. For I am the least of the apostles. You think you're far gone? You think that Jesus won't show up to you? You think that you've done too much? You're saying, you don't understand, I am the least. Meaning that Jesus by his mercy, showed up to me. And because Paul was very religious, he had concluded from what he learned 
that he should not appear to him. But this takes him off guard. Well, Jesus appeared to me as well. Why? Because he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And he kind of feathered his words. He basically not just persecuted them, he killed them. <laughs> he was a little bit nicer to himself. But he would go out and actually kill like, like a legit murderer who was thinking that he was doing the will of God. Kind of what we witnessed early this morning. People convinced that their killings has the blessing of God. So Paul's like, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, is it, oh, is it I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now, and I love this, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, now he's going back to, to, to what he was trying to write. He's saying, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And this does still translate to our culture. And with technology and, and more scientific you know, discoveries, it's becoming more difficult and more difficult for us to believe that someone can actually be raised from the dead. And especially when we have things on social media claiming that somebody raised someone else from the dead and then to find out there's all a fraud it they say like takes has taken this thing and says yeah you know i don't know about that part so don't think that that's new to our culture but paul continues if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised he's basically saying that there is resurrection of the dead and christ also was raised from the dead but then he continues, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses. This is not a guy who's just trying to believe a lie. He's, he's acknowledging the fact because I'm sure he has to wrestle with this fact as well. He says, moreover, we found that to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly and about God that he, was that he has raised up... Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You still are in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. And I want to pause there. Paul is, is laying some really hard truth down. He's trying to clarify that he's not delusional, trying to believe some sort of fairy tale, wishful, hopeful that, that somehow this is all true. He's saying, you don't understand. I am a very, very, very smart man. I've studied all those scriptures, all the writings. I, I, I'm not just a Jewish person. I also have citizenship as a, uh, a Roman citizenship as well. I'm not just some fisherman like Peter, he probably said. But he didn't, he didn't write it. <laughs> probably 
But he's, he's a very intellectual person. And as an intellectual person, he had to have wrestled with some of these things so he can address some of these things that people, that the church in Corinth, that the church in Asheville, that the church in America is still wrestling with to this day. He says, if this did not really happen, if this was just something that we made up, then we, those people who are telling everyone else, we should be pitied the most. And he's also saying that not just your faith is in vain, but those who have died, they died hopelessly. That means you will never see them ever again. That means to life, this is it. And we have to understand these things whenever we're talking about the resurrection. Isaiah 53 touches on this because Jesus did not just die just so that, you know, he, he can tell people that he died. But he died for our sin. And Isaiah writes, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, in chapter 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's such a powerful verse. Such a powerful truth. Because you have two words that are, talk, that are talking about transgressions and iniquities. He's wounded for our transgressions. And transgressions is a, is, is, is a sin that's outward, that's action-based, that's hands-on. It's like if you take something and you see a, a, a boundary and you have a sign that says do not trespass, what transgression is, is like you knowingly, visibly are transgressing and trespassing. When someone's wounded, you can see that they're wounded. They're limping. It's evident. It's, it's, it's visual. But it says he was bruised for our iniquities. And iniquity is another word for sin. But this is not talking about the outward actions, but the inward actions. The intent. The depth of our heart. And this is where Jesus got the Pharisees over and over and over again. Because they're like, look, we, are, we don't transgress. And he's like, uh, but there is iniquity. Have you ever lusted? Oh, boy. Jesus did not just come to take care of the obvious sin, but he also came to take care of the internal issues, the deeper issues, the issues that plague so many people in our culture that we have turned to pills and other things to try to cope with and deal with, not fully understanding that true freedom is found in Christ Jesus. He came to take care of the internal, the inner part, as well as the outer part. And I love, there's a, a Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and I don't think they have this here, but, but this is this. Um, is, uh, Paul's also writing, for I will, this, and this is from Jesus, for I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Now, that is such a powerful, because he's not just acknowledging, he's not just saying, hey, I see your transgression. Everyone sees your transgression. You're messed up. But what's even more messed up about you is what's happening in the inside. Because what's happening in the inside is far worse. People only see the, the good version of you, no matter how bad it looks. But the inside is really what the deal is. But he's saying, I will not remember your sins again. And that is such a powerful statement because, because 
we, we may even interpret it this way where, oh, God is all of a sudden, he's going to forget. Well, if God's God, can he really forget? He can't forget. And I love this word, remember, because it is the word zakar, which is to employ your hands and feet and lips to engage in whatever action that remembrance requires. For instance, when God remembered Noah and his floating zoo, he made a wind blow over the earth and the waters. So God remembered Noah, so he acted based on the fact that he remembered that Noah was righteous. And so what this is saying is that God's not going to remember. Whenever you give your life to Jesus and he washes your sin, God's going to forget. He's not going to forget. He's going he's to not remember your sin. What that really means is that he's going to see your sin. He's going to know your sin because he is God. But he's not going to take that and act in accordance to your sin. Instead, he's going to remember that he sent Jesus and then respond in grace. That is such great news because now we don't have to walk in guilt and shame and condemnation. We don't have to perform every single weekend. We don't have to show up for church for God to be pleased with us and happy with us and love us more. We don't have to do any of those things. But we do those things because we realize that our sins have been washed away. That our hearts are clean and cleared. That we have been justified, not because of our great works, but because of the great work that Jesus performed on our behalf. So this is why when we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22, this is brilliant. But as it is, he lays all this stuff down and then he goes, but as it is, like listen in, Christ has been raised. He has been raised. He's saying, I feel it or I don't feel it. I know it or I don't know it. But I'm here to tell you that I'm convinced because of the writings, because of the life, because I've seen his death and because he's appeared to me. I've seen it. I'm convinced without a shadow of a doubt at all. Zilch, zero. I can tell you, but as it stands, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Who cares what you've heard? But he's saying, but as it stands, Christ has been risen from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's also not just talking about you, but those who have already died. He's, he's inserting hope into the grave. Wow. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Oh, such a tweetable Paul. For just as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all have been made alive. So there is life behind the, beyond the grave. Jesus' resurrection guarantees not just that when we die we're going to see him, but the fact that he came as the light of the world and as life for us. So it's not just the fact that one day things are going to be all great. No, that he's offering life and the kingdom life for us here and now. 
It's not just some sort of future event. His death is so powerful that he wants to give each and every person eternal life here and now. The grave and this life beyond the grave represents that there's hope in our despair. There's hope in whatever situation you find yourself in. Our sin and our past, it does not define who we are. It does not shape what our future is like. And our sin of our past does not define us. Because Jesus dealt with it. He has given us a clean slate. And we can have confidence that what he said he will do. He will accomplish. And he gives us purpose and destiny. I love that because Jesus is always talking about the future. Jesus is always talking about the present. Jesus is always talking about the past because he's redeeming our past. He's working in our present, and he's always directing us towards the future. This is where hope comes in because this is not just something that we should add to our religious dimension. This has to change everything within our, our life. The resurrection is not just a happy ending. You know, like the Disney movies, and they lived happily ever after. No, Jesus, he resurrected, and what happened was they did not live happily ever after in the same way. They had to go back and begin to hide again. They began to wait again. And so these next 40 days after Jesus resurrected, he began to appear to all these people. So he didn't just appear to a group of of persons, you know, 10, 12, just his apostles, just his close people. No, he appeared to over 500 people. He was appearing for a few weeks. After he resurrected. But what this resurrection needs to do is needs to, it's an explosive beginning of God's kingdom rising within us. It's in seed form. And when the Holy Spirit enters your life, when you give your life to Jesus, darkness has to step aside and give way to light. Death has to step aside and give way to life. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture because light is telling the darkness to move. Bye-bye, darkness. You've had your way. You're done. And life, because Jesus is life, that's what he's telling the grave. He's like, yeah, I did, you know, (laughs) been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Grave had to submit to King Jesus. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so as the band comes up, I want to conclude with, with this. And we're going to give everyone here an opportunity to either just maybe, maybe you need to kind of reconnect back to this Jesus. Maybe this Jesus is from your childhood. But some will hear this for the first time. Maybe you're here and you're hearing this message for the first time. Maybe someone invited you and you're like, well, I've never really been. And you're, 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 you're listening to this, this message for the first time that Jesus lived, he died, he resurrected, and he wants to give you and me life. Not just when we die, but here and now. But some of us, you may be listening to this for the first time, we're going to give you an opportunity as we sing over you to surrender your life, to give your life to Jesus. Others, maybe you're hearing this for the very last time. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tonight. You may, not, you may not live to see the next Easter celebration next year. 
And so this is a vital and very important aspect of what this resurrection is. Because what we have to do in our response to Jesus rising from the dead is that we have to give our dead life to him so he can bring it to life. Because he's not only promised, but he's fulfilled the promise that he's able to take dead things and breathe life into them. He's able to take darkness and insert light. So today you have options and, and as we get ready to sing over you, I want you to think about three things that God wants to do for you today. God really wants to become your friend. When you don't know God, when you have not given your life to God, the Bible says that you are enemies with God. You're God's enemy until you give your life to Jesus. Because his wrath, man, it's just, it's going to be poured out on you. And God's like, you're my enemy right now. But I want you and I to become friends. The second thing that he wants to do is he wants to forgive your transgression or your out, outward sin and outward issues and your iniquities, all your internal issues and things that you're dealing with. God wants to forgive all of it and then not remember it to hold it up against you. And then the last thing that he really wants to do, he wants to restart your future. He wants to restart your destiny. He wants to breathe fresh into your future. He wants to give you the hope that you're longing and desiring for. He's not just saying these awesome things. He's not just inviting you into a life. He, he, he demonstrated that when he speaks, that when he promises, he will fulfill. You can count on his word. So he wants to breathe hope and destiny and life and light into your dryness.